Praise God. Um, go ahead and tell somebody that you love seeing them in church. You know, man, love seeing you in church. I'm moving down here. I'm moving down here. It's just more fun down here, I think. And uh, how many of you had a good week this week? Did you have a good week? Good week? Good week? Good. Man, it is. It's fun when from week to week, whether highs or lows, when you're walking with the Lord, there's always a good thing to be praising God for. And, uh, you know, even in the difficult times, at least, you know, you're not alone. He's with you. Amen. And, uh, you know, I love the song that we were singing about. I'm going to see a victory. Uh, if I were to say, what's the theme of this service? I, at first I was saying, well, it's about our purpose on this road of restoration. But honestly, I think a better title would be in line with the song, I'm going to see a victory. That bridge where it says he takes what the enemy planned for evil and he turns it for our good. And that's a beautiful way of saying the same heartbeat behind this message, but saying it from a different perspective. And um, uh, I believe that God takes the things that are planned to tear us apart or to rob us or to destroy us. And God in his mighty power uses that as a setup to bring glory to his name and to make us stronger. In fact, it brings us closer to our purpose. Uh, the reason God made us, the reason that God um, called us by name, because I believe he calls us by name. Jesus knows your name. The Holy Spirit knows your name. God the Father knows your name. And, um, and he calls us according to his good purposes. Let's start off and let's... Uh, Oh, look at that. My, my notes went to last week's notes. I'm going to pull up to this week's notes on restoration. And um, here we go. And I want to start in Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to be thinking about the bridge that we sang on uh, that song, Victory, about how he takes what the enemy plans for evil and he turns it around for our good. Matthew chapter 1, most exciting uh, section of Scripture ever created. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I feel his spirit already. This is great. Let's keep going. Judah was the father of Perez, not the Pez Candy, but a different one, the grandfather of Pez Candy, and Sarah by Tamar. And notice the name Tamar. This is very important. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. That's very fun. And next one, Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, my favorite color of pink, which is really red. And uh, Salmon was the father of Boaz. We've been talking through the book of Ruth, right? So Salmon was the father of Boaz, but by, who is his mom? This name right there, Rahab. So we've already said Tamar, now we're to another name, Rahab. Rahab. And Rahab is usually uh, referred to with a little hyphen. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. That's a pretty horrible name if you ask me. Rahab the prostitute. And um, so Boaz was the father of Obed. And his wife, as we know from this book, was Ruth. Ruth. And um, the nice thing is, is 
when Ruth and Boaz had a child and they gave Obed basically to Naomi, her mother-in-law, to raise as her own. And so then he would treat Naomi really like the mom. And that was the way so that Naomi could have a, a future and have a retirement plan, basically. But Obed and Ruth, or uh, Boaz and Ruth had Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, the king. The most famous king, probably, of Israel. Maybe to maybe Solomon. Solomon was pretty popular, too. But David, wow, what a popular king. The second king out of that whole nation. And uh, what an amazing story in Scripture. But here's the point. Those three names out of Matthew 1 are pretty impressive, especially when you think about what the enemy has tried to do in those three people's lives to destroy them. And this whole message is about, hey, when you are in the ugly place of you need restoration, let's get real. Let's get honest. This is how we follow the book of Ruth, right? It started with uh, Naomi and her husband and her two sons left everything that they should have stayed at, and they walked away from God, really. And in that compromise, the two sons married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth that they were not supposed to marry. This was all compromise. And they're living in a whole land that they should never have lived in. They should have stayed in their homestead, Bethlehem, and they left it. So when your life is in need of restoration and you're kind of all messed up for whatever reason, do what they did. Naomi looked around and said, my husband's dead. My two boys died. They had wives. None of them had children. And I don't have any future here financially. I don't have anything. This stinks. You got to be real. And you got to say, Life is not good right now. We need to change. And they heard that there was blessing back home. So they turned that repentance and they went back to where God had uh, really ordained for them to live and to thrive. But when they came back, she had to deal with the label on her. Remember? She came into town and they said, Naomi's back with Ruth. This is great. You know, Naomi's back. She goes, don't call me that. Now I'm bitter. I'm, I'm poisoned stuff now. And so a lot of times on that road to restoration, you might start, turn, and go back, but then you become labeled with a stigma from everything that you've been through, and you almost see yourself in that way. And that's the way Naomi felt. She saw herself as bitter and, and judged by God, and she even misinterpreted God and said, he's the one who's out against me. And there was some real twisted thinking because of all the hurt that she had been through. Well, then... Um, we get to uh, today's message, and there's a lot of things about this new purpose that I want to touch on, but boy, what is important about this? I think in this process, you can't lose sight of what God is doing, that God is actually, he's bringing things about to complete his good purposes in our life. And we have evidence of this because in Ruth and Naomi's story, Ruth, who is not supposed to be in the lineage of Christ, is included in the lineage of Christ. And in Matthew 1, they talk about Ruth, they talk about her relatives before her, and none of those three women, none of those three women, if you look at what the enemy, the devil, or the enemy of our souls was trying to do in their lives should have ever been included in Matthew 1. So think about Tamar, the first one. Tamar, Tamar was a woman who was a Canaanite, so, and she was a very pagan woman. And, uh, and 
She was widowed twice. So when she married Judah's kids and she wanted to be a part of this Jewish culture and everything like that, it didn't go so good. The first one died, the second one died, and then nobody wanted to be with her. So it, they had this law. Remember in Ruth, there was the Leverite or Leverite law, which meant you've got to produce an heir so that the bloodline can continue. Well, nobody wanted to do that for Judah's other two sons. The third son, Onan, he just basically said, nope, I'll, I'll have relationships with her, but I don't want to have any children or any responsibilities. So he totally backed off. She was totally left destitute. And then Judah, the dad, he ignored it all and just left it. He didn't want to do anything about it. And so then in her experience, the only way she could overcome it was to manipulate the situation. And she got smart and conniving and she dressed up like a prostitute. And then she slept with the dad and produced an heir. Okay, now it sounds like Jerry Springer, if you remember the old Jerry Springer shows. I mean, I never watched it. Travis watched it all the time, but I never watched it. And uh, so, no, and, uh, so, I mean, it just sounds like a soap opera or something. When you hear those stories out of Genesis and stuff, you're like, this is crazy. But that woman, that Canaanite woman with her twisted background and everything, all she knew is she wanted to be a part of this family and she was holding them to the Leverite law. It wasn't even a part of her culture, but she was more noble than the others. And God honored her. And when God honored her, it was like he knew she was trying to abide by the law when no one else that should have was. That's an interesting concept because in this whole road of restoration, when you make it your heart's intention to pursue the Lord and obey him, he takes that serious and says, okay, well, you're family now. And it doesn't matter if you're like Tamar and you're a Canaanite woman. The minute you want to pursue the Lord, he says, all right, I take you, you're mine. He doesn't reject you. He should have, you would have thought, yep, I would have rejected her. Judah rejected her. her three, his three sons rejected her. But God said, nope, she's the only one that's trying to do what's right. And everybody else is doing wrong. I'm going to honor her. And that's why she's included in that lineage of Christ. And then you go down, you know, she has some kids and you get to the next one, Rahab. This is amazing, this story. So Rahab is... Well, first, let's think of the labels and the names, because this is what the enemy would do to both Tamar, Rahab, and, and so on. Tamar means the equivalent of saying out of the trash heap. So it'd be like saying, you're just junk. <laughs> so when people look at her or think about her, they think, well, you're just out of nastiness. You're just out of a trash heap. And that's a horrible label and then it almost makes you feel like, well, that's the way she was treated by those three boys and the father-in-law. Wow, she was just junk. And yet she didn't let that hold her back from her rights according to God's law. But then when you get to Rahab, Rahab is this prostitute who lives in this city, Jericho, which was a massive uh, Amorite city. And in fact, this Amorite city was so evil, so carnal, that God spoke to Joshua when they go in to clear out the land. He said, with this city, I want you to destroy this city, and I don't want you to take anything out of it. I want you to kill everything and everyone. I want you to just wipe the whole thing off the face of the earth, is basically what he says. And so in spite of Jesus, or speaking as God through all that situation, wipe it all off, there's somebody who escapes. And it's the prostitute in town, one of them probably. So a prostitute. 
how in the world did this happen? Well, it tells us in the stories, looking back in that Old Testament, it was pretty clear. She's listening to the, the rumor mill of every testimony of all the cities that Israel is coming around and they're beating all these people and stuff. And so they know, she knows they're probably going to be coming here too. And instead of doing like everyone else in the Amorite world, um, appealing to their gods and doing all the different things and trying to, you know, muster up a war and, and fight against them. She does the exact opposite. She goes, I'm going to switch and I'm going to join their team. I'm going to be kind to the enemy because I believe there's favor with them. And there was where my hope is at. She turns all of her attentions to being a spy. And so when the two Israelite spies come, they find refuge there at her house. She hides them. And the crazy thing is, is Salmon, or you know, the guy, one of the two spies that stayed in her house, is the guy she eventually marries. So that's kind of crazy too. And so when she leaves after the city is destroyed, and you know, and he's one of these guys who was spies in that whole land. And you look at this and you think, this is incredible. The one person to escape was the only person in the whole city that believed God was working through this nation of Israel, and it was a prostitute. Why didn't anybody else? <laughs> and it's that scarlet thread that she used as a sign to give them everybody a clue that, hey, she's the one, you know, save her, spare her. And, uh, and so I look at that. Can you imagine what everybody in the community said about her? Well, she's nothing. She's just a prostitute. They would have thought anybody else could have been saved probably, not her. And I just think it's interesting that Rahab, the, the Amorite harlot, was the one that was spared and, um, and so then you look at Rahab, and that's Boaz's mom. Uh, many of us don't realize that Boaz's mom was an Amorite prostitute. <laughs> and he's the guy who then sees Ruth, another foreign girl, and says, I'll take pity on her. Now, here's, here's where my brain starts to break down. I go, why in this case is it appropriate for a Boaz who is a Jewish man to marry a Moabite woman and not for Naomi's uh, two boys to marry this Moabite woman and all these other people like that? Why isn't that appropriate? Well, at the heart of all of those laws about marriage and everything is this relational component that we can sometimes miss. It's like the letter of the law is what the New Testament says kills, but the spirit, the idea in the law, the principle, it gives life. And so when you look at the letter of the law, she should never been married to this uh, Boaz, but the heart behind it is Boaz looks at Ruth and says, I know what you have done. I know your heart, your character. And he reflects then the heart of God that says, anybody who comes and follows me, you're family. And so he looks past her natural lineage and accepts her in a spiritual sense. That's like what we said in that message about labels. Know no man after their flesh. Know them after that spiritual label. You know, and so just like how he said, we knew Jesus after the flesh, but then when he was resurrected, we knew him as he was. And so there's this idea of that, yeah, in the natural, you might be German, Irish, you might come from this place or that place, but in Christ, what does it say in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church? You're brand new creation. That's what really matters. So in the Old Testament, how do you know these concepts are in the Old Testament? Because you look back and you see, look, 
Boaz looked at Ruth and said, you're a new creation. And how did he learn that? He probably learned it from Rahab, his mom, who said, hey, you know, dad, he was a spy, and he looked at me, and the first time he saw me, he just said, that's a prostitute. And then pretty soon he began to see, you know what? But she believed in our people, and she believed in our God, and she risked everything. She left her family, she left her background, and she adopted all of our faiths and our beliefs, and then love probably started. I would love to see that love story, you know? And, uh, and then he says, she's part of the family now. And so he marries her. And so I think Boaz was trained. And, um, and what was the difference with um, Naomi and her sons? They left God and pursued their own ways and their own things, and God doesn't bless that. Ooh. So God doesn't bless that, and they knew it. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes people can say, well, look in the Bible. See, they did this, they did that, so then I'm blessed. No, it's the intention behind it, too, matters in God's eyes. Are they obeying God or are they rebelling from God? Because God doesn't bless rebellion. He'll overlook and he'll be gentle and not treat us as we deserve, but he isn't going to bless the rebellion. He'll, he'll endure it and be long-suffering. And so... Uh, you look at this, Ruth, Rahab, and Tamar, and there's something interesting out of the pulpit commentary from uh, this section of Scripture. The pulpit commentary is an old uh, commentary. I don't usually quote from commentaries, but I like what they said about this. Um, the union of Ruth the Moabite with a man from the tribe of Judah is a foreshadowing of the union of both Jews and Gentiles. It's a very interesting uh, comparison. And, um, and then it, they go on to say this, and the fact that they're included in Matthew chapter 1 in that lineage of Christ is almost like a down payment or an earnest statement about the character of God, where it says God's character is all-embracing, where he'll accept anybody if they come to him. That is a beautiful way of describing why um, it matters. In, and it, it's one more Thing that he says. He says, if people like Tamar, Rahab, and even Ruth are included in the lineage, listen to what he says, there are none of us who may like erase hope. I love that idea. Every one of us has hope in God's kingdom. And the reason we have hope is because when we do God's will, we are included in the family. If you ever thought about that, that comes from Mark chapter 3, verse 35, where it says, those who do my will, they're my brothers and sisters. And it's a beautiful idea. Um, but let's get back to this idea of purpose. And on this road of restoration, how does, the, how does God take what the enemy plans to do in our life and turn it around for our good? Well, in part, he does that uh, because of what the power of the Holy Spirit does. And in order to lay a groundwork for that, let's read some scriptures together. Um, I want to read Ephesians chapter 2. And, um, well, before that, let's go back and read Hebrews chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, says this. Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25. says, because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and for all to save those who come to God through Jesus. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. 
One translation uses a different word, that Jesus, as this high priest, um, he saves to the uttermost anybody that comes to him. So there's no limit to who he can save. And the reason we're reading this is because I'm asking the question of, so if the enemy comes to try and steal, kill, and rob, and then we're on this road to be restored to God's purposes or what God wants in our life, we need to know there is no limit to what God can do to restore. There's no limit to, to what God can do to restore. Um, it's, uh, I, I think this. We bought a house uh, years and years ago, and in the yard of this old mansion, uh, left out in the elements... Uh, in Illinois was this old side antique uh, piece of furniture and it just had two cool you know doors ornate with little handles and stuff but the weather that was affecting it ate away so there was all this wet dry rot yuck and and rot from the ground so one whole leg about a last foot of it was eaten off just kind of crumbled and it was eaten off the entire top piece of wood totally eaten off the veneer in different sections had buckled and pulled off and and then the handles were all tarnished and uh, and then the inside it just stunk and there was mold and there was so and mold gets into wood and it's horrible so most people when they see that would go ah that's good and they clean the junk out and for whatever reason i looked at that and i didn't see something i should just clean up and throw away i looked at it and i thought uh, I wonder if there's a way that I could restore that. And so the restoration process on that piece of wood was so unique. I'd never done something like this before. Like I said, one of the four legs was so eaten up and rotted away. I only had one leg that was completely intact and had all this carving, all this uh, you know, uh, work uh, on the lathe that was done. And so I took one of the good legs and I filled it in with some putty and I made a mold off of that leg, filled that that mold with another like resin and matched it to the other piece of wood and packed it all in. And the reason I did that is I didn't want to take that whole piece out and just put a new piece in. I wanted the old wood there. And I wanted to try and make it so that you couldn't see it. It worked. But that took a lot of effort just to make the mold, create all kinds of stuff and put it on there and fix it in. And then refinished it, did some new laminate on the sides. And the only new piece that I put on was on the top. And I kept it a whole different color so that no one would ever know that it wasn't a part of that original. And to this day, that sits in our basement. It's got a shiny enameled surface to it. And I just look at it and every now and then I go, that was in my yard. And it was totally destroyed and it was totally useless. It was the ugliest piece of furniture on the entire property. And we got all kinds of cool old antiques. But that was the worst of all. It is the only antique I have from that property. I, don't, I didn't keep the big square grand. I didn't keep the antique, you know, sideboards. I didn't keep any of the other furniture, stuff like that. But that piece spoke about restoration to me. And it was the worst one. That's just a silly piece of furniture. <laughs> you and I are so much more valuable in God's eyes. And so when you look at people in this life and they, it seems like they have gone so far in trying to destroy either the image or the purposes of God for their life, just remember, God is more powerful than this furniture restorer at restoring a person. In fact, Hebrews says he saves to the uttermost. There is no one beyond the limits of salvation. 
And, uh, and I know that uh, from not just my own personal life, but some of my close friends in ministry. One of my uh, favorite uh, ministers in Arizona, he, he spent five years in a federal prison because of his association to mob and to murder. And he found Jesus in there, and he got out, and he became a preacher. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. And uh, when you would listen to him preach, he preached with this intensity of, like, this is real. This changes your life. Why? Because he knew how far he had gone to destroy any future life, and it was only because of being saved that little by little, his life was restored back to him. And then he was released, and then he became a preacher, and he led people in restoration. And I look at that and I think that's amazing, but that's because God saves to the uttermost. And you could say that about Tamar, couldn't you? You could say that about Rahab, and you could say that about Ruth. With each of those people included in God's redemptive story, the enemy tried to destroy everything in their world. And yet, God did something mighty in changing it. And so, in your life and in my life, here's where we begin to turn and talk about God's purposes being restored in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Um, it says, some of us, this is verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. I can say amen to that. I was dead in my trespasses and my sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And, and that's true. If you would have looked at me, you probably would have said, he's a pretty good kid, but man, I was so dead in my sins. And I was even raised in a Christian home, but I was still dead in my sins. And yet I looked just as good as anybody in the world. Uh, on most accounts, I looked just as good as anybody else in the world. But the whole world is bound up in sin until they find Jesus. And so the whole world, according to the course of this world, and according to the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan himself, that spirit that Satan is driven by this antichrist spirit. It says that spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we all formerly lived in these like manners, the lusts of our flesh, whatever we wanted to do, our gratifications or whatever feels good, do it, you know, that kind of stuff. And it says indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I look at that. I was like, man, that just sums up the way the world works. It's how you think it, how you perceive it, what you want to do, and all that kind of stuff. This is the nature of humanity, and, um, and it is an ugly thing, and all of us can relate to it because we're all human. And it says that indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature, and it gives us this label, children of wrath. And everybody that lives under the power of the enemy is a child of wrath. And, and so I don't want to forget what it, we're talking about here. The enemy's trying to steal and rob and do all these things. And we, we know what it's like to live for our own desires and live by the dictates of our own mind. But that makes us children of wrath. God wants to restore us, bring us back to a relationship with him. And it says in verse 4, but God. And so just like in those three ladies... Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, the but God comes into the story and says to a Tamar, well, you have a righteous idea. You want to follow my laws. I will make this work out for you. And then, 
but God for Rahab. Rahab, you believe all these testimonies of this Israel nation and you're going to take a risk and you're going to trust them and not your own little gods that you've grown up with the Amorites. I'm going to honor you. And then he brings her in to a whole new family. And then the same thing with Ruth. Ruth, not like her sister-in-law who says, I'm going to go back to my family. Ruth is that beautiful picture of saying, I'll leave everything I used to know and I'm going to follow you, Naomi, and I'm going to follow your God and your people. And because of that, that's a but God moment where he says, now I'm going to restore to you. I'm going to do great things because God entered their story. And just in verse four of Ephesians two, but God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we started out dead in our transgressions, he makes us alive together with Christ. And this is why we say it's by grace we are saved. So now we're coming to an element of this whole message where we're going to talk more about the power of the Holy Spirit in making us alive and restoring us, and we can't lose sight of this. Um, because last week we talked about work, didn't we? We talked about work on the road of restoration. you got to put the work in. You can't be restored unless you're doing the work. And we look at even Ruth. She was a virtuous woman. She was a hardworking woman, and it really gave her favor with Boaz. We've got to be obedient. As far as we're concerned, we've got to do what God asks us to do. Okay, so that's a truth. But let's, let's assume we're doing everything we can in obedience to God and the restoration isn't coming yet into our life. We're not changed yet. Things aren't restored in, in whatever way. And then there's this gap. There's this frustration. Well, I'm trying, but things are getting more difficult. Or I'm trying to obey you, but I'm still struggling in this area of my heart. Or I need this healing. Or my relationship with my you know, family is estranged or whatever. There's so many things your heart might be hungering for to be restored but you might be feeling this tension and you're doing everything you can do. That produces a frustration and we don't even know how to put it into words. And this is when we come to this perspective. In Romans chapter eight, this is the but God for us today. So it's Romans chapter eight, verses 26 through 28, because we usually read verse 28 and we separate, separate it from the previous couple verses. Verse 26 says this, in the same way, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know how we should pray. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, it's reference in the Spirit, searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is. It's a beautiful scripture here. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow. We haven't got to verse 28 yet. Now let's stop and just see what's happening here. So if you're doing everything you know to do, on this road to restoration, I'm going to be very honest with you. It's not going to do very much. <laughs> it's because it's not going to change people's hearts. It's not going to change the things that are outside of your control. It will only change what you have authority over, and that's your obedience and those things. There is so much in this world you can't control. You can't control when someone gets sick. You can't control when someone gets dying. You can't control if somebody rejects you. You can't control, you can't control that junk. 
There's a world of sin out there that is so nasty and horrible and the, the effects get on us and yet we're on this road to restoration and you're doing the best that you can. So then what happens when you're feeling those tensions and you don't know what to do with it and you have these groanings? It boils down to this. In the spirit, we have something that we can do. This is the but God. But God will partner with your spirit when you pray in the spirit. And when you pray in the spirit, what happens is you're changing things in, in such a manner so that you're opening up the door for God's spirit to come in and give you the fruit spiritually that you may not be getting in the natural sense. So say your marriage is falling apart. And yet you look at scripture and you go, hey, but God, here's what I'm praying for. I'm going to be this type of a spouse. Um, if you're the husband, you're going to love them like Christ loved the church and lay your life down. Why? Because you want to win that spouse's affections and you want to win that spouse's commitment as unto the Lord. And you just believe for that commitment and everything like that. But what if she's a cantankerous sourpuss? You keep loving her, and if, even if it just doesn't work out, you got to keep laying your life down for it, laying your life down. Why? Until God makes a difference. Until that happens, what do you do? You cry a lot. And you can't pray all those things out, because what? You've said four or five things over and over again, and at some point you're like, there's nothing else I can add, God. You know everything. What do you do then? You pray in the Spirit. And when you begin praying in the Spirit, just like what the Scripture says, the Holy Spirit begins to give you the fruit that is only achieved when you let a spiritual perspective hit your heart. And then you know you're not living by faith or you're not living by what your eyes see in the natural. You begin to feel in the Spirit the fruit of what God sees. Because God sees the end of the road. You don't. I don't. But boy... You can sure feel the tension when you're in this part and you need the Holy Spirit to begin to give you the fruit as if you could see the end of the story. This is where people that have gone through crazy situations, this is how they make it. They pray in the Spirit so that they continue to refresh their resolve to continue another day. The, it's amazing to me how this is an element that's left out of many people's Christian uh, practice. They think just knowing a scripture and holding on to the scripture is enough. Yes, it is in a lot of ways, but you will come to the end of that fruit and you will go, I need more Lord. Well, what do you do? The scripture is still true, but you better start learning to pray in the spirit. And, um, and when you do that, your heart begins to respond as if you see the truth, which is here's the story at the end. And, um, and the reason that we know that this works like this is because of what Romans 8 says. It says that the Holy Spirit who sees that end also knows your heart and he steps into the gap and he begins to work it all out. Do we see examples of this in Scripture? You bet we do. Um, I'm going to reference lightly a, a different story. So the story of Samuel in the Bible. He was the product of a woman who prayed desperately, God, I don't want to be barren anymore. And she was crying out to the Lord. How many times did she cry out? She cried out all the time, so much so that Eli, the priest, would look at her and say, why are you so drunk? And why are you so miserable? And she's like, you don't even understand. I'm groaning. I'm praying with sobs that I'm not even using words anymore. 
And so who understood her sobs and her groans? It says right there in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit knows your groans. He knows what's going on inside, and then he stands in the gap, and he works all things together for you, the purposes that God has for your life, because you're called. And so in her situation, God heard her and says, I'm going to give you a child. And then she gives the child right back to God, and he becomes a great, one of the last judge. He's the last judge, and one who starts the dynasty of kings. In your situation and my situation, Tamar, who did she have to cry out to? She had nobody that was listening to her. So I bet you she was crying out, God, you're a God of justice. You need to make this right. I, I can only guess that because it doesn't say all that she did. What about uh, Rahab the Amorite? I'm sure that that lady was so sick and tired of the culture around her, and she was crying out to the God of the Israelites. Same thing with Ruth. Ruth was sitting there picking grain in the field under Boaz's watch, and she's just crying out, God, make us, uh, make us prosper. Give us away in this place and, uh, and change my mother-in-law's heart from bitter to good again. And then she finds favor with Boaz. But she's crying out to the Lord, no doubt. And in your situation and mine, I believe that there is a key on this road of restoration and it's prayer in the Spirit. I want to finish in Romans 8.28. Look what it says. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. God works everything out. He works it all together for the good of those who love God, and those who are called according to God's purposes. Man. Wow. I think this is a beautiful thing because I am very aware of my weaknesses at times, and I think you are probably aware of your weaknesses at times. So let me ask you a rhetorical question. When you look in the mirror and you see shortcomings, you see your failures or flaws, does that void God purposes for you? I don't believe it does. Do you believe it does? You believe that where you've been and the things you've gone through have somehow limited what God can do with you now? Um, have you destroyed yourself, so to speak, to the point where then God's not going to do anything? Have you destroyed a marriage to the point where, yep, God's not going to be able to restore it? Um, on and on. You could put almost any situation in there. Can God work it around? Can God do something great? Can whatever? Can God restore it? In the earthly sense, it might be as gut level honest as a Job. He lost everybody. And that's horrible. But then God gave him twice back. Twice as many kids, twice as many stuff. Is that make up for the losing of the others? No, but it reiterates this principle that when you are chasing after the Lord, the story doesn't end in the misery. The story ends with God restoring. And so even if you've lost everything, it's not the end of the story, and it's not too far gone, God can restore. And, um, and I think we need to know this today. I think in our Christian lives, we have got to understand that every single person that comes to a church or cries out to the Lord, we're all flawed. Everybody has come from really ugly places, and everybody who is turning and walking to the Lord is on the same kind of path of restoration. And so in that path, you can learn scriptures, hold on to those, but then you'll start to feel a, lo a longing. I need more, God. It's not changing yet. Don't give up hope. There's something you need to do. 
learn to pray in the spirit and battle in the spirit. Pray in the spirit, battle in the spirit. Um, this is something in our area that we don't always teach in uh, churches. I think a lot of people believe that uh, a heavenly language is something you do in private and never out in public. Um, if that was the case, we wouldn't have the stories we have in Acts. They obviously prayed in public, in tongues, and there was a simultaneous miracles of speaking in other languages, literally, that other dialects and other people heard, but also the references to angelic tongues. It's very clear throughout all the New Testament. And so you look at this and go, okay, those things happened. In fact, Paul even says in church that speaking in tongues isn't assigned to believers, it's assigned to unbelievers, which is crazy because I've heard some of my pastor buddies, especially those of the cessationist crowd that says the gifts in the spirit have all ceased, or those that are leaning at least reform in their doctrine, there's, there's a struggle with the things of the spirit. They just struggle. They don't know what to do with it. Miracles are weird. Um, healings are weird. All that other spiritual stuff. And then you get to speaking in tongues, you've lost them. They don't get any of it. It just stresses them out. And some people have even gone as far as to say when you speak in tongues, it's demonic. And I go, wow, that's amazing. And so it's important for us to understand this. When you speak in tongues, what you're doing is you're actually letting the Holy Spirit come in and move in a situation to work all things according to his purposes. And what that looks like in a congregational setting is you might have a bubbling up to just speak out in like almost a worshipful or prayerful response. And you don't have English words to speak. So you speak in tongues. And the crazy thing is, is your mind is still alert. And you can start speaking out in tongues and all this kind of stuff. And if someone who has never been in a service where someone speaks in tongues, I guarantee you they'll go, what's that? And remember, the scripture says that's a sign to an unbeliever. And what is the sign? It's a sign that God's in our midst. It's a sign that God is speaking. And then here's the crazy thing, too. When you begin to speak in tongues like that, and then there's a prophetic interpretation of it, it's really, truly an encouraging interpretation of it. Well, then, man, even the believer becomes built up and edified. Now, here's where we also get it wrong. Um, sometimes we water down prophetic words and we make them only hallmark cards out of good sincerity because we know that prophecies should be encouraging and build each other up, right? Build our faith up. But let me be straight with you. Isn't it true that you don't need just happy thoughts to build us up? Sometimes encouragement to do what is right has to come with not just positive affirmation. Sometimes it has to come with a negative kick in the rear. It just does. You know, I didn't do things I was expected to do. I did things that were inspected by a parent that then came with consequences. So when I was a little kid, it wasn't just, I know I should clean my room because I'm a great child and this would make my life and my parents' lives happy. No, it was, I learned to clean the room because dad said, clean your room. Why? Or you ain't eating tonight. <gasps> you would do that? Yeah. Well, you could choose between not eating or a whooping. Ah, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's so many stories. And you know, you just learned there's consequences. And uh, so even in the prophetic sense, Someone is speaking in tongues and then a word of encouragement comes. Sometimes the word of encouragement is stop sinning, repent, turn. This is your last chance. <laughs> but most of us go, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual and edifying. It is edifying if it takes someone and wakes them up and they stop pursuing that course of rebellion. 
And, uh, and sometimes that's a word of knowledge that comes through it. And, and people are told exactly how they're rebelling or sinning. And I'll tell you, that puts a fear of God in someone. And then they're like, I change. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I can't believe you knew this. Nobody else knew. You know, and it's amazing. And uh, so, but then in our private life too, it's amazing that uh, when we pray in the spirit, we're praying with our mind and we're praying with our emotions in such a way where it gives us a, a satisfying um, uh, task to do. This is so important because when we're praying, maybe, maybe you're like me in some of the prayer experiences. I wear out a prayer phrase or something pretty quick. I can't pray the same thing over and over again. In fact, Scripture says stop being vain in your repetitions. That's just the way pagan people do. You know, they have their little mantras or they have their little sayings and they say it over and over again as if that's going to somehow appeal to their idolatrous God. Jesus is not like that. We don't have to say, oh, please, Lord, oh, please, Lord, oh, please, Lord, oh, please, Lord. That repetition just is kind of a weird way of saying, well, God doesn't really listen, or I don't believe my prayers are even effective. So what do we do? <laughs> That's when you pray the Spirit and groan. And uh, there are so many times in my life where I can say a quick prayer, one line, two lines, I don't feel done. And I'm like, I said the prayer. Well, then now what? This is when I do my prayer walks. <laughs> this, is, this is when I start doing laps around the room and I start praying in tongues. And I don't really know the words I'm saying. I'm just putting whatever I'm feeling out there and I'm praying in the spirit. And how do I know when I'm done? Well, I know because something breaks in my spirit. And I go, ah, I, feel like, I feel like there's peace now. And that peace doesn't come because a situation changed. The peace is coming because now the Spirit of God has implanted this sense of hope about what the future holds. And so I go, yeah, I don't care about this natural thing. I know there's a change. So why do we need this? Well, because we live in a real world and you look in the mirror and you see all your failures and you see your shortcomings and you live in a world where there's sin and there's junk and it's very discouraging. And I hear Christians all the time, they, they naysay about the things that they see in the world around them and they get very discouraged. You know what we should do? Pray in the spirit. Um, and I believe it is something that we've got to enact more this year. If this is a year of restoration, this would also be a year where we pray in the spirit like crazy people all the time. Now, one more admonition, because not everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. They've got the Holy Spirit in them for salvation, but they don't have the evidence of speaking in tongues. All I can say is this. If that's a stressor to you, you talk to me, talk to Pastor Bill. We'd love to talk to you and show you some stuff in Scripture, encourage you in that. Uh, bottom line, though, is I'd say this. Don't stress over it. Just worship the Lord and pray. That's all you need to do. And if you're stressing over it, you're probably thinking about it wrong. You don't, need to, you don't get filled with the Holy Spirit by sweat. And it's not that at all. You just worship the Lord and let the Holy Spirit minister to your soul. And there will come a time where you have to step out in faith and begin to speak in tongues. And, uh, and there's an anointing for that. Um, and so it's an important thing to just rest and take that step of faith at some point. So let's stand and let's pray in closing. <clears throat> Man, my prayer about this is that you're, in, you're stirred up a little bit to pray in the Spirit, but that you're also stirred up to hold fast to what it is that God's called you to do or to be. Um, man, I don't care where you've been. I don't care 
who you are. I care about God's purposes for your life. That's the stuff that really matters. And so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you right now for the people that are gathered in this room. Lord, every one of us, you know by name, and you have a purpose for us that you've intended to bring about. You want to bring it about. And so, Lord, we're asking you now. We're asking you now to remove those things that are hindrances and let us as people that are pursuing you, let us pray in the Spirit, seek you with our whole heart. Lord, let there be all the junk in the past, let it all be forgotten, and let there be a pressing on towards you. And for this year specifically, I pray for an infilling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would just baptize every one of us in the power of your Holy Spirit. And let there be the evidence of it. Lord, let there be speaking in tongues. Let there be the fruit of the Spirit. Let there be the joy of the Spirit. And on that, I ask you right now, a fresh outpouring of the joy of your Holy Spirit. Just as you said, there's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Lord, let it fill our hearts. And let there be joy that produces strength in every single person in this room on this journey of restoration. Thank you, Lord. And, and we just believe what your word says in Romans 8, that you work all things together. You work them all together. And, uh, and we just honor you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise God. If you got anything specific you want prayer for, please come down and uh, we got a we got our prayer team right here and they'll be happy to pray for you. Other than that, you guys be blessed. We'll see you next week.